Welcome to episode 14 of Conversation Pace. My name is Brian Rossetti. I'm the founder of V.02. In this episode, I spoke with Pete Ray, the head coach of Zap Endurance. Zap is a post-collegiate group based in the mountains of Western North Carolina. I was fortunate to work with Pete as an athlete at Zap in 2004, 2005, and credit much of my experience there as inspiration for getting into coaching myself. Pete's resume includes 51 Olympic trials qualifiers since 2002, four USATF club cross-country team championships, one US marathon champion, and one Olympian. We discuss how he got into the sport, his own coaching influences, and the benefits of ZAP's training program for post-collegiate athletes. We also discuss how support for strength and nutrition has evolved in their program over the past decade. But beyond his training philosophy and experience, what always stuck with me working with Pete was his honesty, his encouraging words of support, and the way he made the process fun. I saved these words he wrote to me when we started working together over 15 years ago. It's such a good example of setting expectations and the right environment with your athletes. What I need from you is simple, patience and a positive attitude. The latter is perhaps most important as I'm sure we will have some ups and downs in the next few cycles. Getting through these times will define you. Anyone can train well when things are clicking. When they are not, that is when believing in the system is truly important. Hope you enjoy our conversation. Pete Ray, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me, Brian. Awesome. So how's it going there? And you are technically, you guys always say blowing rock, but aren't you technically in which we affectionately used to call uh, Leno or Lenoir or no? Well, the Zap, the Zap facility is um, the very last piece of land in Caldwell County in Lenore, uh, all of about 50 meters from uh, Watauga County and from Blowing Rock. Um, but I right now I'm sitting in Blowing Rock at our house um, right downtown. Oh, so you're just across the border in, in your house. That's right. Correct. Yep. Gotcha. So how are you guys doing down there? How is... Uh... How have you been managing with family, kids, school, and, and your athletes down there? Yeah, like, uh, like I'm sure a lot of the people who are listening to this, um, it's been a challenge. Um, you know, we live in a small mountain tourist town, which is what Blowing Rock is. And, um, uh, you know, there's only about 1,200 year-round residents here. So the public school is small. We have two young kids, a son who's nine and a daughter who's 11. And like everybody else in the country, just trying to figure things out. It looks like they're going to be online um, this this fall anyway. But um, so figuring that out. But as far as Zap is concerned, you know, for the first time in uh, in two decades, we're uh, we had no we we shut ourselves down this year. No college teams, no high school teams, no triathlon or running groups or uh, retreats or any or even our adult running camps. Um, we made the decision when this really blossomed, when COVID blossomed, that we uh, were, gone, were going to do what was in the best interest of our resident athletes and um, mm. keep keep uh, keep other people away. <laughs> was there was there still demand? You think for for the camps, both collegiate and, and recreational? But you guys made that decision, or do um, you, yeah, interesting. I, I would say in the beginning, we had people saying, you know, hey, you're going to have camp, right? Um, but as mm -hmm. things, as the real picture 
from epidemiologists and infectious disease specialists came in became clearer uh, our decision to pull the plug everyone said of course you know um, if by some chance we stayed open I, I really don't know who would have come anyway um, you know the hotels here in Blowing Rock are, are actually open um, little, little surprised but uh, mm. Social distancing is something, I mean, you've been there, you know, you used to live there, Brian. It's yeah. impossible. It's impossible. You know, you've got uh, 35 to 40 people in really close confines. They're in our in our dining room. They're in the weight room. Um, they're in the lecture halls. And uh, it, 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 there's no good way to, to keep to keep people apart. So um, it's kind of where we are. Yeah. Um, so... Do- how is the town? I mean, is it pretty typical? Just is there a big divide in terms of those that are abiding by social yeah. distancing and then those that are completely against it and just think think this is all ridiculous? I'm sure that the you guys don't have too many cases, I would assume, right? Um, just uh, based our, on how remote it is. Yeah, it's a it's a rural mountain area. Um, our cases are on the increase here in Watauga County. I think we're somewhere in the neighborhood of um, 75 to 100 cases in the whole county. Um, I don't do not believe there has yet to be uh, a recorded death in the county. Uh, North Carolina as a state is not doing well. The numbers are going in the wrong direction. And then the first part of your question, yes, it's a real divide in terms of You've got, um, you know, Boone is a college town. It's sort of a hippie mountain college town of Appalachian State. And um, it, it seems uh, like people in Boone are <laughs> trending to listen to the science a little bit more. Yeah. Uh, Blowing Rock is a, it's a very conservative town. Um, it's a little bit of a demographic than Boone. And I would say Blowing Rock seems to be the kind of town where there's still lots of people uh, thinking that, the whole thing's a bunch of BS. Right. Yeah, that's tough. And I'm sure you have, you've got campers that are maybe in that boat, right? Where they were disappointed that you guys closed, or do you feel like everyone kind of sympathized um, and understood? On the, Zap, on the Zap camper side, I would say the support's been awesome. Across yeah. the board, all of the communication that we got from everyone was, this is the right thing to do, and we're going to miss camp. Um, uh, but we'll get through this and uh, hopefully see you in 2021. Yeah. And how much is, I mean, you don't have to get too into detail if you don't want to people, how much of the budget now is, is dependent on, on camps. Are you guys pretty fortunate based on your, your donor base at the moment? Right. I, I have no problem sharing of uh, this uh, yeah. being that we have a 501 C three. A lot of this is public info, but look, mm-hmm. our, our budget has for the last, um, 16 years anyway, not necessarily the first few years, but it's a budget of thirds. About a third of our budget comes from all of our camp and business at Zap. A third of our uh, of our budget has come from our corporate sponsor on Swiss Company, and then a third of our budget has come from donations. It's almost right down uh, into three pieces of pie. And um, so this year, uh, a third of that is has gone away. Yeah. Wow. And congrats on the, the on sponsorship. Uh, you guys certainly look sharp these days with the, <laughs> with the new get up. Um, so excited to see that and I hope it's going well so far. 
Yeah, raising my raising my uh, the, the fashion game on the running side. <laughs> I, I'm the guy who always had torn sweatshirts, but uh, no, it's a really unique and forward-thinking brand, and um, we're incredibly fortunate to be associated with them. And um, I have to laugh a little bit because um, my good friend John Dennis, who I think you've met, Brian. John is British, and he was actually he won the NCAA 5,000 meter title twice in in the 1990s, running for the University of South Florida. Right. He mm-hmm. uh, he started a company uh, called Fit Brands UK around 2007 2008, and one of the first companies he distributed in 2010 2011 and 2012 was a Swiss brand called On. And I remember at the time he said, "I've got this great wow." fresh thinking new brand. I think 2010 was the year they were founded. And, um, and I remember at the time thinking, you know, Swiss company on never heard of them. Uh, and then, you know, by 2015, 2016, we started, they started trickling into the States and you were seeing them in specialty. Uh, and then now the geez, just the global sales figures, they're doing incredibly well in uh particularly in the specialty market it's neat to see yeah i can't it's amazing like hoka and on to see how quickly in terms of market share that they've just come in um you know thinking about sock and imazuna some of these brands that we grew up with right that have been around forever and just how quickly these guys came in um super impressive but uh most importantly, you guys look sharp. We live in an Instagram world, Pete, and uh, that's that's all that matters, right? For sure. And obviously, <laughs> we're super excited about what they're doing with uh, the new Pulse Collegiate group led by uh, Dathan Ritzenhain and um, the athletes they've picked up. Um, really uh, unique yeah. time to be starting a new group, but we're pumped. Yeah, so that's out in Colorado. They're going to be based in Boulder. Um, and I think yesterday was the day that they officially announced the remaining members of that team. And, um, they've got, uh, some real heavy hitters and, um, yeah, it's exciting. So we've got, got a little bit of mountains, uh, um, both chains of mountains, the Rocky mountains, and then us in the, in the Appalachian mountains. So talk a little bit about that just so people understand. We certainly all have listeners who haven't been to either or been to one or the other, but, um, what are the big differences in terms of training, living in, in Boone or Blowing Rock versus Boulder? Yeah. Um, you know, the style, the terrain and yeah. the setting, you know, to you, what are, what are the big differences? Uh, I mean, first and foremost, Boulder is a little higher. Uh, I, 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 one of our athletes here at Zap, he's been with us for eight years, actually, Tyler Pennell. He is a Colorado guy. He grew up in Golden um, home of course. Um, but he, you know, they're, they're more, you know, 5,000, 5,500 feet for a lot of what they do. And then as you know, Brian here in Blowing Rock, we're one of the higher settings east of the Mississippi. Most of our runs range in elevation between about 3,800 and 4,500 feet. So we're a little bit lower. And then the other, um, the other big difference is, we actually have humidity, and uh, I, don't, I don't believe there's much at all in Boulder. Um, we do the vast majority of our running, maybe 60% plus, in one national park. It's called Moses Cone. There's about 30 miles of carriage trails. They were originally created for um, for horseback riding and carriage horse riding. 
Um, a lot of dirt roads here in the high country, and from what I gather, most of the post-collegians in Boulder, um, there's lots and lots of dirt roads. So I guess in, in that sense, um, yeah, fairly similar. But the humidity where you guys are, I mean, it's a short window, right, where that really plays a factor? It's not too yes. long. So if you're looking at all the weather data, our humidity is really just about the same as any place on the East Coast. It's just that it's a very odd place. Um, it really doesn't get much of, um, I mean, an 80 degree summer day is very, very hot here. The average high in Blowing Rock in July and August is 75. So, uh, it's actually quite a bit cooler here in the summer in Blowing Rock than where I grew up in Connecticut. Wow. And then, but you guys are still going down South when the winter, cause you do get some rough winter climate there for a bit, but you're. It seems like you pretty much escaped that. The, yeah, so Long Rock, surprisingly, you, you'll get, um, you know, on average, um, 30 to 50 inches of snow a year, which I know is not huge. It's not Mammoth Lakes kind of snow, but, um, yeah. and a lot of ice too. So since 2000, see if I get this right, since 2003, we've been spending, um, we've been going to Tallahassee for, um, winter training camp. Uh, it started with just a couple weeks and then geez, over the last 10 years, we've been spending upwards of eight to 10 weeks a year in Tallahassee. So it's sort of our, it's become our home away from home. And Pete, what do you usually say? Like if you, if you have an athlete that, um, comes to you guys or that's applying to the program yep, and they have that question about, well, you guys really aren't at that high of altitude sure. what's generally your response because i've always been fascinated talking to jack about it and more and more he looks at it more as like a training camp effect is what mm -hmm. he calls it not um physiological so right he's, he's referring to a distraction free you know better climate is where is why athletes are mostly getting those advantages when they might be thinking, oh, it's because I'm training at 7,000 feet. That's why I'm getting better. Sure. Uh, it's interesting to hear that that, uh, that take from Jack. Um, I do agree with him that the environment that you're in, um, that you can make any environment work for you. Um, I think it's a, it's a little naive to, to say that um, – uh, you know, elevation doesn't have significant benefits. I, I believe it does, but that, um, even heck, even if it is the placebo you're talking about, even if it is, hey, I'm at elevation, this is really going to help me. Because if you believe it, then it's going to work. Um, I do believe inherently that the moderate elevation that we're at, uh, and you'll have to ask Jack about this, but I, mm -hmm. I could have sworn that he did a study on moderate elevation at essentially a kilometer and slightly above at some point. But you know, Boone at Appalachian State, they get the NCAA conversion, um, altitude conversion for track marks. And you lived and trained here. And what's really interesting is everything's just a hair harder. So when we do, sure. you know, like say it's a longer threshold based session, like 10 times 2K or something, or, you know, uh, we, do, we do a lot of thousand meter repeats on grass. That same effort, and again, some of it might just be perceived, but that same effort when we drive off the mountain in the winter and do something of similar effort at the bottom of the mountain, 20 minutes away at sea level, you know, for miles, it's always six or seven seconds a mile quicker down there. 
Um, so mm. I do believe even if it's just the mental effect, everything's just a hair slower up here. And, um, we tend to always feel better when we leave 4,000 feet and go down to, um, go down to sea level to race. Yeah. When, I mean, when he was making those comments, he, it, he was referring to a lot of the studies that had been done at the time where mm. they're taking kids out of school, they're stressed. Yeah you know, about their girlfriends, about school, you know, they're, they're living in crappy, you know, conditions and it's hot, it's humid. They pull them out and they're just up at altitude. All they're doing is training, eating, sleeping. They're in great environment and um, great weather conditions. And then they're like, Oh, look, the altitude, it helped them, you know? So <laughs> I think it was just more his criticism of the flaws in the study and then he likes to use that as an example to point out that at altitude, he learned to hurt. Yeah. And he thinks right. that's a big part of it. And I, I think that's what was cool about <clears throat> Blowing Rocket, where, where you definitely felt the difference. I, I would agree. I remember distinctly. But, but you, you were able to learn to hurt, but still train at a, at a fast pace. I always am, you know, find it remarkable that people come from 7,000 feet. They can only train so fast up there. Correct. And then yeah, they got to come down. I, I can't imagine mentally going into a race where you've got to run so much faster against the competition, you know? Yeah. And I would say that that's something um, I, I don't remember who, who it was. I was speaking to one of our former athletes. It might've been Thomas Morgan who said that that was one of the beauties of Boone and blowing rock and the moderate elevation of 3,500 to 4,500 feet. That was a place that you could run fairly steadily more often and have it beat you up a little bit less than you might be mm. able to do um, in, say, you know, Park City or someplace higher. Yeah. Well, I miss Moses Cohn. Uh, I think about it a lot. Um, I definitely got to get back there to run. It's an incredible place. I remember vividly one particular tempo run that I gave to you and Joe Driscoll. <laughs> And it was just as winter was emerging with the crazy high winds we get here. And I think I told you guys to run six uh, loops, um, which would be 9,000 meters progressively. And I think you might have been faster on the second loop than the first with 40 to 50, 50 mile an hour winds. And then the last four loops, as I recall, at one point I looked up and I'm, I'm not sure you guys were running seven minute pace. Uh, not sure you remember that. <laughs> I, I vaguely do. I think I blocked that one out. The The wind there and <laughs> as winter approached um, still scares me sometimes. The hollowing winds up on the, the top of blackberries, especially. You get um, a lot of wind. Yeah, yeah. Um, I actually have, amazingly, and I think I sent you a picture by text. Um, I'm in Scranton right now for the summer because it's just yeah. been very convenient with with uh, my parents helping with the kids. And um, so anyway, my mom took advantage and said, you got to go up into the attic and clean some of your shit out. <laughs> I'm sick of it. I, ne I need to make space. And sure enough, I found um, folders of your workouts that oh, you really? gave me when I left. So it's been kind of fun to look through. So I want to talk a little bit about that. But before we get into um, more of the coaching and your philosophy, I'll just talk a little bit about growing up. Um, I just want to do some background, how you got into running. I actually don't remember. I think we probably talked about this, but where did you grow up? How you got into running and, and what was really the moment that you think hooked you into the sport? 
Uh, yeah, I'll, I'll, I'll uh, try to give you the Cliff Notes version here. But yeah. in the end, I grew up, my hometown is Farmington, Connecticut. It's actually my, my mother still lives in the house I grew up in. And my sister's two miles away with her husband. Um, but Farmington is just a bedroom community for Hartford. It's an, uh, you know, kind of an insurance suburb. Um, and it's a, it's a soccer crazed town. Um, mm. you know, the, the two big powerhouse towns in the state of Connecticut for high school soccer are Farmington and Don Cabral's hometown, Glastonbury. Um, nice. and, uh, one of those two schools seems to win the state title every year, but I grew up in a soccer town and I was that athlete who, I mean, I was always just good enough to make the, the, the travel team, but not good enough to actually play. Um, I was, you know, the kid who just sat on the bench and then at the end of the game, if we were winning, the coach had put me in for five minutes. So I was that guy. And, um, but what was interesting is that anytime we did anything in terms of like an endurance run or a fitness contest where we had to run nine minutes or something, uh, I'd always win. And we had a Scottish coach, uh, Mr. Bell, who was, um, smart guy. And I vividly remember, I think I was in sixth or seventh grade. At one point, he pulled me aside, and I had just finished first in the fitness run. I think it was nine minutes mm. around the soccer field. And he said, you know, uh, I think God might be trying to tell you something. And, and, and I said, what's that? And he said, well, you seem to win all these endurance contests, but, you know, you're not actually playing much. You're not getting much playing time on the soccer field. And what he was actually saying is, uh, maybe maybe it wasn't soccer you were meant to do. So I um, so I, you know I like a lot of kids. I just start started running and. Um, were you offended by that, or what did you? What were you thinking when no, he said actually, that? Like, I took it took it fairly well. I, I remember going back yeah. home and my my mom said, "Well, you know, because my mom was running road races when a lot of women weren't, even as early as the mid to late seventies. Um, she did it." originally to lose a little weight. Um, I remember her running around the neighborhood with her Tom McCann um, shoes, which is crazy. Uh, but I would go to road races with my mother in those years, in 70, 1977, 1978, 1979, when the first running boom was just launching. And I loved the atmosphere. I loved how you know the, the person running an hour for a 10K – um, yeah. could, could hang out after the race and hold a beer with the guy who just ran 30 minutes to win. It was just such a unique environment and I was really drawn to it. So I started running in high, uh, competitively in high school and, um, you know, I got fairly good. I won, won a few Connecticut state titles and I, and, and I got to spend my summers all through high school and all through college. Uh, I ran at the university of Connecticut, um, I spent my summers at a place called Craftsbury, Vermont. Um, it's a setting very much like Zap. They have a center there for adult running yeah. vacations. And they also do crew. I think they make most of their money on rowing. <laughs> they have a lake there. But uh, And it, it was there in Vermont that I really met the people who changed um, my life, the people who basically planted the seeds for all my coaching philosophies. Um, I spent uh, a number of summers with Peter Fitzinger, who's now the head of New Zealand Athletics, um, he's an American who made two Olympic marathon teams, 84 mm -hmm. and 88, and just the people who were willing to sit down with me and talk to me about how to get people to run fast. So it was really Craftsbury that, that shaped you, but you it was the soccer that, that kind of hooked you and your, your parents. It's so familiar. I mean, there's so many 
athletes we talked to, very similar. They got cut from the soccer team or they realized <laughs> they were faster than everyone on the soccer field and not, not that good at the sport. Or they just, it wasn't that their parents forced them. And the same in my case, it was just kind of, they there was no babysitters, right? So my, my dad was doing a weekend local race. So that's where we went. And we just kind of hung out and just kind of being immersed in that environment was all it was, I think, you know? For um, sure. I do, I would similar, like to point out yeah. that I, uh, you know, I, I also wrestled in high school. And um, it's uh, something I was just talking to my wife, Zeke, about that, um, uh, the, the 93 pound class, um, that, uh, that winter of 85, uh, won the conference title. The, the, the unfortunate part is I was the only 93 year in the entire conference, so I didn't have to do much. Just had to raise my hand. <laughs> um, <laughs> nice. So then talk a little bit about, about getting recruited. Were you recruited to UConn or was that something that you yeah. were shooting for or just kind of came about? As right. you excelled, how did that develop? Well, um, I was recruited um, by a number of schools coming uh, coming out of high school, and um, I, I actually the the school my my freshman year I actually attended Georgia Tech, and I had a great coach at Georgia Tech. His name's Steve Keith. He's now the head coach at Vanderbilt, um, and uh, I loved the program there and, and, and ran well my freshman year, but I really struggled academically. Uh, Georgia Tech was pretty much a straight engineering school at the time, mm. uh, that or architecture. And I, I mean, I think I, I fled in academic disgrace at the end of my, my uh, fr freshman year. I, I think I was hanging on to, uh, to about a 2.2 GPA. And um, I had been recruited by my home state school, UConn, um, and I called the coach, Greg Roy, who's still the head coach there. Uh, yeah. I called him back up and I said, look, I, I, I academically, I really think I made, made a mistake. And um, he was great. He welcomed me back. So I transferred home to UConn where I majored in um, English and journalism and uh, had a really great academic experience and a good athletic experience. So, yeah. Um, what was your standout at UConn? What was your standout performance at UConn? Uh, you had a name one or two. I guess for me, I mean, I mean, again, I was by no means a superstar. Um, you know, we finished um, uh, my junior year. We won the NCAA regional, and back then they used to run District One and District Two together, and it was called the IC4A. Yeah. And we actually won our district, District One, but we also won the IC4A title and finished tenth at the NCAA meet. So uh, for us, that was a real accomplishment we lost the big east conference championship that year to providence by i think four points um mm. we were second at the, the the big east meet in van Cortland park but that was a really special year for us as a team and uh i i think uconn had not been to the national championship as a team i think 69 was the was the year prior that they had been there that for us that was 1990 and and i don't think they've been, at, been there as a team since so Wow. And, and what was training under Coach Roy like? I, uh, I don't remember conversations with Dan um, when he was there. So I yeah. really don't have a clear picture what it was like or what the philosophy was under him. Yeah. Um, I really give Coach Roy a lot of credit because Co Coach had um, 
had his own system that he had used going back to his time at Bucknell uh, in the in the early eighties. And um, but it it really was it was an aerobically based system with a lot of let's just say um, the the icing on the cake was the quick stuff to finish. So it was just the classic mm. long tempo run or long intervals every week, a good solid long run every week. Um, but something that we that I really hadn't hadn't done when I was at Georgia Tech, but we would always finish something longer with something quick. Like we'd say, hey, we're going to do um, this seven mile road tempo loop. And then we would finish on the track, which at the time was dirt. Uh, UConn didn't even have an all weather track then. And he'd say, let's run. I'm making this up, but he'd say, let's go run six three hundreds in 45 to finish when you're already fatigued. And that was something that. Uh, we drew drew a lot of strength from. Uh, and that, I mean, it seems like that has been a big influence on you today still, right? I remember not necessarily finishing on the track, but 45-second pickups or whatever it was that you like to add in at the end. Was that mostly coming from him or just that's something coming, that you call works well? Yeah. Coach Roy, and, and frankly, to, to give credit where credit's due, I mean, I really learned a lot from Peter Fitzinger and, mm. um, you know, Pete, like so many of those great greater Boston track club athletes of the eighties, his coach was Bill Squires. Mm. And I, to, to this day, I mean, Bill's mid in his mid eighties now. Um, and the, the types of work that Bill taught American running in the seventies and eighties in his peak years as a coach were really groundbreaking. And, and a lot of that was doing very little with one energy system where you're always changing gears. And, mm. um, if you don't mind, I'll tell you just a quick story. Yeah. Um, I used to coach my wife Zika and, and before we started dating. And then <laughs> when we started dating, that doesn't always go so well. She, it, um, the <laughs> big, big, being the boyfriend and the coach, um, it, it, it we became it, it became cross purposes. So she's like, "Look, I need a, I need a new coach." And I said, "I agree." She you fired you, pretty much. Yeah, I yeah. got fired. I so, sort of remember that. But where where did she go? She went to Bill. So I said, "Why don't you call Bill Squires?" I mean, he's still coaching a handful of people, not many. And of course, Bill had coached Sika's late husband Andy, mm. and um, so she called Bill, and it's. It's actually a funny story. He said, you know, he has that real high voice. He says, you know, Zeke, I'm not coaching new people anymore. And she said, well, I figured since you coached my late husband, Andy, and Bill said, wow, Jesus, you pulled out the dead husband. <laughs> oh, um, no. And, and he agreed to coach her. And Bill is very old school. I mean, didn't have a cell phone, didn't even have voicemail. He used to mail, like actual old school mail, her workouts once a week, she'd get a letter and she'd open it up and he'd have his scribble of the workouts he wanted her to do for the week. And yeah, the first thing that really hit home were these pickups in these long runs. And it was very simple stuff. He'd say, I want you to run, you know, whatever it was, 20 miles. And I want you to do a one minute pickup every 10 minutes. <clears throat> and I remember calling him and saying, Bill, you know, I'm, I'm here just to support what you have her doing how fast should those one minute pickups be? And he would say, well, they can be as fast as you want, as long as you can return to the pace uh, between them uh, and maintain that same pace for another nine minutes before the next pickup. So 
that was back when I was fit enough to be able to do some of these runs with Zika. And, um, you know, it'd be a one minute pickup and then 10 minutes later, there'd be another one minute pickup and it would be throughout the 20 mile run. Right. And doing those one minute surges by the end of a 20 mile run was really, really, really tough. And, uh, and, and I remember bringing those pickups up with Jack at one point and he, I remember him saying, you know, look, you can actually slow twitch muscle fiber will actually recruit fast twitch fiber if, if mm. at the end of long runs, if things are super fatigued. So, um, so fast forward six weeks and those one minute pickups started changing in their duration. It would be, you know, one, one, two, one, three, one, four, one, one. So now some of these, these pickups are as long as three and four minutes. And then fast forward another three weeks, and now we're a few weeks out from a marathon. And some of these pickups, Brian, would be things like one one four one six one eleven one one. And and I just remember being in the park with Zeke at one point, and she's like, "Okay, I have an, I have an eleven mile surge," which, and she, and she ran two miles in that surge. And I remember thinking, "Gee, was the ability to change gears when when fatigued?" Um, yeah, and. And then I started having conversations with the likes of um, uh, um, Dick Beardsley and Bill Rogers um, and um, all the, the really great people like Peter Fitzinger that, who Squires coached. And they were always doing those surges. Nothing, long runs were never even. Even the mm -hmm. easy ones would have light, light pickups. And um, it teaches athletes how to race, not just how to time trial. That's really cool. Do you, I feel like Squires... He certainly doesn't get enough credit, right? Like you never hear him part of that conversation about the big coach influencers or. Oh, um, that Greater you know. Boston Track Club. I mean, the, the, the <laughs> likes of the people that he uh, worked with, you know, uh, Randy Thomas, who's the coach at Boston College, who ran 211. And he coached Greg Meyer, who, of course, won the Boston Marathon in 83 and broke the world record for 10 miles. And I mean, Andy Palmer, who was a two. 1625 marathoner. I mean, I think Andy told me at that time he was the 15th fastest guy on their team. <laughs> um, and it just, yeah, they had a really great crew in that window from the mid seventies to the mid eighties, that greater Boston track club was really phenomenal. But it was such a small, <clears throat> excuse me, such a small percentage of the population were into the sport. Those that were were the super serious extreme, right? All those guys were probably what running 120 miles a week. Yeah. They all, uh, with, with some variants, they all were running quite a bit and you just hit on a really big point, which is in that window, there weren't a lot of real people. I, I think fitness was more the ancillary benefit. It, mm -hmm. it, it was a good, you know, obviously you were going to be fit, but there weren't as many people running purely for the, for the sake of fitness. Yeah. I always laugh because at one point we asked Jack, we said, <clears throat> I think we got to look at the formula, Jack, you know, for these marathoners, <clears throat> it seems to, you know, there may, there's some inconsistency or I feel like it could potentially be a little bit accurate. And he would kind of laugh and he's like, you know, when we first released the VDOT tables, they didn't go slower than three hours for a marathon because no one ran that slow. <laughs> so I am holding in my hand from Andy Palmer's files, a copy of the 1979 Jack Daniels and Jimmy Gilbert Oxygen Power Performance <laughs> Tables for Distance Runners. It's in my hands as we speak. That's hilarious. Uh, 
And um, unfortunately, I'm going to have to do some math because, of course, the marathon times don't have – it's based on minutes. Yeah. So, for example, a 60.0 VDOT performance in the marathon from this table is 163 minutes and 25.3 seconds. <laughs> <laughs> Nice. I actually haven't seen that. Um, let's see. It's in a, a three. It's in a ring binder. A three. Well, yeah. Three-hour marathons of fifty-three point five v dot. Um, that's funny. Um, yeah, it's just it's incredible how much has changed. He always he always likes to talk about too, like if the U.S. had just a little bit greater percentage of participation, then we'd probably see the most dominant runners, you know? Um, yeah. And uh, so anyway, but um, so cool. So let's get back. I want to get back to your, to your story, getting into coaching. We talked about yeah. some of your influences and inspiration. Sure. And then you coming out of college, you did spend <clears throat> some time. What was your main objective when you were still training competitively? Was it just love of sport and yeah. also, Olympic trials in the marathon was that the, the were those the main goals at that time? Yeah, I mean for me, I, um, I uh, came out of college um, and I again uh, was by no means a superstar, sub thirty minute ten k. But uh, I was thinking to myself, I'd really like to get to an Olympic trials um, in the marathon before I hang up my own shoes, and I and I never did. I could never put together those last uh, six miles. Uh, but mm. um, so I, I was fortunate. I, I ran for a post-collegiate club, Nike South, for three years um, before they cut me. And Who was the coach um, there, Pete. It was actually, wouldn't you know, it was Steve Keith, the same coach mm. I had when I was at Georgia Tech. Um, so I graduated UConn, and he said, you know, come on back down. And he was gracious enough to coach me for a few years. Um, and we had a good team. I mean, it was Scott Strand, um, who was. Uh, ran well at everything from 1500 to the marathon and it was David Honey and it was Greg Metcalf who was a steeplechaser on, on the team and um, um, uh, Bob Hennis. Um, so uh, Rick Patterson, we had, a, we had a good, good post-collegiate crew, but I knew even then, I mean, I wasn't breaking any American records. I started taking coaches education classes as early as 1993, my first year out of school. Um, in fact, my very first coach's education class was instructed by a gentleman by the name of Art Goulden, who oh, yeah. the longtime coach at Bucknell. And, um, and it just really, I was always fascinated by trying to help, um, individuals, uh, what, what make them tick, what, what, uh, helps athletes realize potential. So I was living in Atlanta running for Nike South and, um, I uh, went and got a master's degree at, at, at a place called Kennesaw State University, um, you know, the Harvard of the South. <laughs> <laughs> of course, I was waiting for that. Um, no, it was a really good school for uh, for someone looking for a master's at night in, uh, in teaching and um, he uh, helping out with their then Division II program. And uh, I got lucky. I had a few individuals in Atlanta, some adults, uh, a few Olympic trials uh, marathon, uh, women, and then actually a handful of high school kids as well who didn't have coaches in Atlanta who asked me for help. And, um, we saw some success and some state titles for the high school kids. And, 
Um, so I was living in Atlanta coaching individuals when um, my longtime friend Andy Palmer, who um, I knew from high school up in Craftsbury in Vermont, told me that uh, he was intending on moving to the mountains of North Carolina and building a training center, a full-time running center, not just for post-collegians, but for camps for um, adult runners. And I, I was skeptical. Yeah. <laughs> I, I said really, uh, th- you're going to make this thing happen, uh, make this thing happen. And, and, um, but, he, you, but you had come from Craftsbury though. So you, you still, what were you most skeptical about? I, I just look, uh, I, uh, I was a little skeptical that Andy and his young wife Zika could make things work like, Hey, we're mm-hmm. going to go and build this place and put together a foundation and support athletes coming out of college. And, yeah. and, and you got to understand, Brian, we're talking about a time. The first time he said this to me out loud was probably 1999, <laughs> 2000. And the depth in American running was absolutely horrendous. It yeah. was absolutely awful. Um, Andy Palmer was the 66th fastest qualifier for the 1984 Olympic trials in the marathon with a time of 216 20, 66th. I want to say that in the year 98 or 99, that same time would have had him either sixth or seventh fastest American. Wow. Um, Where are we today now? Are we, we're back there or are we better now? Um, I don't necessarily know that we're better than we were in 1983, our best year ever, but Mm. we're real, we're really close. The sheer number of American men who had run, uh, we should we should probably look at it because Pete Fetzinger, who won the Olympic trials in '84, he became the first American to, to defeat Alberto Salazar in the marathon mm. that day. He his qualifying time was 2:12:36, and he was the 16th fastest qualifier for the '84 trials. So, if you were a 2:12:36 qualifier for this trials uh, in 2020, I'd be curious to see where you'd be. Probably similar. Yeah. I'm going to try and take a look as, as we're okay. chatting. Um, yeah. That's interesting. So we've got, uh, of course, USATF doesn't have it numbered. I'm going to have to count. <laughs> <laughs> it, it's, not, it's certainly not 60 deep, that's for sure. I would say it looks more like 30, um, and which, is, 30. which is softer than I thought. Interesting. I could be yeah. wrong. That was just a quick search. But um Interesting. So, um, <clears throat> so you did coach high school. You were the head coach. Or which high school was no. it? Or you were just I, sort of an assistant helping because you were teaching there? Yeah, I was teaching at a high school in Atlanta called Walton High School, and I was not the head coach. The head coach was a gentleman by the name of Tom Williams. I mm-hmm. was the assistant coach in uh, in charge of the uh, uh, the boys distance uh, distance runners, so the eight hundred meters and up. And and. You had mentioned to me at one point that you you preferred working with more individuals or on a private coaching basis than than a team, or is is that wrong? Do you miss the team components? But there's yeah. there's a trade off there that that you that you prefer. Yeah, I miss the team. Um, I will say, in retrospect, the high school kids who I coached privately in Atlanta. Um, I, I actually encourage coaches not not to do that anymore. In in yeah. the sense that. I actually think it caused some real um, strains. You know, here I was coaching a couple of high school kids who were already on teams, and 
Um, it, it can cause some interesting strains within a team if you've got just a couple kids coached by some private coach, um, and and I happen to be that private coach. So I, I really loved working with the individuals, but um, I really I really missed our team. Walton was and is a great high school. It's in the, the north side suburbs of, uh, of Atlanta, real strong um, tradition. Their boys actually won the state title just this past year in cross country. Um, and uh, yeah, I really miss working with that team and teaching there. Frankly, they had, they had a really yeah. great English, English uh, department. <laughs> There's a lot of the private with high school kids. Is it just mostly scholarship motivated by scholarships, parents for the most part? It's interesting. Um, the motivation, I'm not sure. I do think that there's this perceived notion that, you know, if I have some private coach on the side, I'm always going to be better off. I, I it yeah. tends to be families, obviously, of means. Um, <laughs> yeah. uh, I, I really don't know. And, and I realize that in skill-based sports, golf, tennis, you know, um, that sort of thing, you know, sort of that additional work perhaps with someone on the side is, is, is important. But, um, the, the whole private coaching thing, I'm not sure about the rest of the country, but in, in the South, it's, it's, uh, it's become a real thing with distance runners now. Yeah. It's interesting. Um, I just, it makes for weird dynamics, right. For, for your team, right. When they're, they're looking at you and you have a private coach, I think that's, yep. doesn't create a good environment. I've seen that side of it. I mean, as much as my high school coach, I feel like I certainly could have done better. Like if he was there following Jack's book or if he had right. some sort of knowledge, but at the end of the day, I mean, the more athletes that I talked to were in similar situations where their coach really didn't know they got by on talent. Um, they're still in the sport today, you know, right. because they had a great relationship with their coach. Right. Um, the, the coach was just supportive. He, he was, there to support them and um and it wasn't so much about training philosophy right so yeah so i always look i think that's that's the the good side of it but then um and then you something that always stuck with me that you mentioned was and i don't know if you if you believe this totally today or if you um if this is if i got this right but i remember you said something along the lines of you know, if I took an athlete, a young athlete who was super talented, and I had him do 200s on the track every day, and if he absolutely believed that mm. that's what he needed to do to go to states or be successful or win the state, then I think he could be pretty successful. And yeah. um, that was like striking to me. I'm like, oh my gosh, I would get hurt immediately, you know, and it, I kind of missed the point at first, but I'm like, that's crazy. You know, no, how could you survive? But um, Jack talks about some of his military training where they actually did something similar um, where it's like hard 400s every day, pretty much on the, the dirt track. And he's like, I don't know how we survived. We never rested and actually got any benefit from it. But, um, but at least to, to your point about just believing in the system. And I guess that's maybe it's social media, maybe it's flow track as much as that stuff has helped the sport. Yeah. Bring in new people. It's also like we had no knowledge. I had no idea unless we didn't have a running store growing up. So we, we just like had to go get a book on and figure out how to train. So sort of being in the dark was, was, was a positive. Yeah. You know? 
Yeah, I mean, we just had a, a team meeting here at Zap where we talked. We were actually talking about the next four years for our team now, mm-hmm. um, and obviously, notwithstanding the pandemic, I mean, you know, we're all looking toward good things to come. But we talked openly about like believing. You've, you've got to believe in what we're doing whole, wholeheartedly and unequivocally, um, and because that that belief is is really really important. So when I said you know hey you could have a kid do two hundreds all day long and he might run better than the athlete who doesn't believe it and is training perfectly, I don't really know that that's true. Uh, but uh, I was just trying to underscore the importance of saying this is what we're going to do. It's going to work, and if you actually believe that. If you're that athlete who's always questioning, I don't know if this is right. Uh, I heard that this group is doing <laughs> this type of workout. Um, that's a slippery slope because it can. Uh, you should be able to toe the line, saying, "I've done all I can do, and I've done the right things." Do you have a hard time? Is one of the one of the big challenges with your athletes? They they come out of school. Do you notice that there's a lot of? I guess it depends on the individual, but. In my case, I felt like there was pressure, right? Like that I I had a short window, right? Where I needed, like life was going to call and I had to be careful about, depending on progress, how long I was going to commit to doing this. Yep. You feel like that's hard to, to, you know, trust in the system, take the long-term view, but in the back of their heads, are you always fighting like, they, they want that success soon because shit, I got to get a job. I got to, you know, I've got to think about what the heck comes next. This isn't going to be my life, you know? Right. So a hundred percent. So athletes come out, come out of school and, um, if they join our team and if they're accepted under the team, uh, as a funded athlete, they, as you know, Brian, they get a lot. I mean, it's salary, it's health insurance, it's all their, living arrangements, it's massage, everything, travel. But in the end, you're also not, I mean, you're not buying a vacation home. Um, (laughs) And um, you're probably going to make less than you would in your given field. Um, So, yeah, I think that there's pressure. um, There's societal pressure, certainly. And then there's often um, self-induced pressure of like, hey, I've got to make sure that in these first 18 months that I do some really great things or – uh, I just can't justify, right. you know, this, this, this lifestyle for very long. That's a re- that's a very real thing. And you've got to sell, I mean, that's, that's part of the challenge, right? Cause you're selling that long-term view. That's part of your training philosophy. Yep. But if someone comes in, I mean, I'm, I made progress. It was a big transition for me that first year. I don't think it went particularly, um, well, because it was a big transition in terms of life, environment, but I got faster and that yep. kept me in, you know, like, okay, let's, let's see what happens this next year. Um, yep. But I, but I can imagine that's pressure because you're, you're not training them to make a big leap in that first year. Right. But, but they sort of, it's helpful for them to, to keep their head in the game, you know? I, I think a lot about um, Allison Morgan, her maiden name was Grace. Um, I I actually think she, uh, she lives out in Bend, Oregon now. And she, um, I actually think she just broke the world record for the beer mile. (laughs) I'm so so proud. No, she did. Um, but anyway, young kids, I guess you could still do that when you have kids. Yeah. She, they have twin boys, she and Thomas, but, um, her first year when she came out of the university of Kentucky, she was running, Oh, 
40, 45 miles a week when she was at Kentucky. And when she got to Zap, you know, we sat down and said, this is going to take a little while in terms of you adapting to more running, um, more volume of your harder sessions. And I'll be, be honest, her first year was terrible. I mean, it, she didn't get, she didn't get injured, but it was, I mean, yeah. I vividly remember her going to Mount Sac and running 1730 for 5k. It might've been 1728. Um, and we were, planning rest periods and you name it, but just the adaptation. And then within a matter of, I remember this, it was, she'd been at Zap 13 months and she did one workout that we commonly do in the park. And it was uh, a 4,500 meter repeat, a 3k repeat, a 1500 repeat and a 400. And she was light and flowing and she hadn't looked that way all year. Yeah. And I, she crossed the finish line. I said, we need to find a race. I don't care where it is. We just need to find some race somewhere to show you that you just turned the corner. And it was a road race called the Bell Share 5K. And the course record was held by Joan Nesbitt, who made the 1996 Olympic team in the 10K. Mm. Um, and the course record was 1611. And, and Allie ran 1609. And, um, and she was off. And that next year was just filled with PRs, um, and, you know, got to her first outdoor track championship. And I think she ran 1546 and, but, 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 but anyway, again, she was willing to say, I'm going to believe in this process despite this awful year. And I've seen athletes who have four months that don't go well and they want to hang up their spikes. Hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Um, are you more particular about an athlete's training history? before they come down there. Um, I just think, you know, for, for example, look at Kyle. Um, I think he was more a high mileage guy, right? Very, um, I don't know that he had much of an injury history at all. I could be wrong, but that guy just did nothing but improve when he got down there. Um, and for me, I felt like that first year, I don't remember feeling good in a workout. Um, cause it was such a big transition and, and I improved, you know, I think it was, it was working eventually the, the training was working, but, um, or maybe like Brendan, right. Who's lower mileage guy. <laughs> I have to mention Brendan, yeah, um, of course. who had great success, you know, cause you were able to really individualize, um, the training for him in particular, but do you look more closely now? Like, can you be predictive, or is it really just if someone's you know, meets the credentials and their head's in the right place, you think they're a good fit? Yep. Um, is, is that part of it? Or how do you guys look at that now? How's, has that evolved at all, too? Yeah, it, it, it's evolved some. I still, this might seem naive because recruiting is important, and I do recruit more now than I used to. Okay. Um, but I still want athletes who want to be part of the program, not ones who I have to convince to be part of the program. Mm-hmm. Um, and I get it. I'm, I understand that when athletes apply, they also are looking online and saying, okay, it's a really nice support package. And that's something that, uh, I need to, to help advance my career. I, I understand that part. Um, but, um, I, I really like it when an athlete comes on a visit and says, this is a team and this is a geography and a coaching staff I'd really like to be around. Um, but, it, but in terms of the types of athletes, I tend to look for athletes who saw improvement in college. Um, not that you can't have a bad year, but um, the the maybe not the ones who were 
superstar freshman, and then they really struggled in uh, their last three years. Um, I, I really like to see an athlete who was on an upward trajectory. And then lastly, I will say, not in all cases, but I really like the kids who come out of the schools that aren't necessarily the uh, the it programs. Um, and that that's not to knock anything on a Colorado kid or a Northern Arizona kid or an Oregon kid. I, I, I don't mean that. But, you know, there's so much talent in this country. And you mentioned Brendan. I mean, here's a guy who I think he ran 347 for 1500 meters at Brown University. And he mm -hmm. was, you know, he was injured every three weeks. So yeah, that's a guy I look at and say, man, if we could just keep him healthy. And he, and he did for a year and a half and he runs 340. So, or, you know, you went, you and um, Carl went to, to St. Joseph's again, a good, very good program, but you know, it's not necessarily considered one of the stalwart organs of the country or um, we've had a lot of those athletes in our program that have come out of schools that um, uh, they kids who ran well, but they did so maybe with a little less opportunity. Maybe they weren't, you know, on the track at Stanford in a rabbited race 10 times in college. Yeah. Um, let's talk a little bit about the, well, I want to get back to, cause you touched on it and then we, we got caught on a different tangent, but Andy, what were the big factors? Did he have a connection to that area before? Was it somewhere that he just kind of found because it met it checked off certain boxes that he was looking for? Or what was the, the backstory on that in terms of the location? I think the, the real connection to the North Carolina mountains was that both Andy and Zika had both been counselors at Roy Benson's Nike uh, high school camps in Asheville. Mm -hmm. uh, Asheville is a little lower. I think it's at about 23, 2,400 feet. But uh, to be fair, Zika and Andy looked everywhere. They looked in Arizona and New Mexico um, they even briefly even thought about like Acadia National Park in, in Maine. I think that would have been a tough sell for kids coming out of college. Uh, but someone said, you guys should look at Boone and Blowing Rock. And they did. They came to the area. They went for a run at Moses Cone National Park. Mm. And they absolutely uh, loved it. Moderate elevation, summers that aren't hot at all. Um, and, and frankly, and it was also East Coast. And the Hansons, um, of course, and, um, and Zappers have been sort of the two east of the Mississippi um, yeah. uh, programs with a lot of the other programs being out west. And uh, I think that was actually attractive to Zika and Andy that like, hey, there's so many good East Coast athletes. Right. Um, so that's, that's how it, they ended up here. That's cool. And you, I remember being down there like you, maybe it was just Atlanta fatigue, right? Or like post, post yeah. Atlanta um, trauma, but you genuinely, it seemed like you genuinely just loved the area as well. And it sounds like you, you've definitely loved to call it home at this point, right? Yeah, I still consider myself a, a New Englander. Um, <laughs> I definitely dropped too many F-bombs for locals to, uh, to be comfortable with here in the South. But um, I love the small town. Um, it reminds me a lot of small town New England. And um, I love, I love the, the mountains. And, um, yeah, it's a unique place to live. So, Pete, um, just want to touch quickly on, on a couple of things in terms of your training. Um, sure. 
strength nutrition. I mean, I catch glimpses of, of what you guys have been doing just through social media. And I feel like when I was down there, the, the sport, right, was just maybe on the cusp. I don't know. I still felt like there was, there was this breakthrough in terms of, I don't know if you want to say innovation, but in terms of approach to strength, maybe nutrition, you had started to introduce drills. Yep. Um, I actually have this sheet on the old Zap, um, like memo paper here. <laughs> um, drills, I like, I like this, just at the top, you wrote drills that will enable you to destroy the competition. <laughs> did I really write that? Yeah. <laughs> you, did. you did, yeah. And I wanted to make sure I read that. Um, so you, we've got eight of them here, toe walks, heel walks, Yep. Calf raises, the yep. step ups, lunges, hurdle overs, yep. hurdle unders, um, which I loved because we didn't do much of anything in college. So I felt like it was very helpful to me. But since then, now we've gotten into you know, more functional strength. I feel like we've learned a lot. And um, the athletes today are, are lucky, you know, considering the, the everything that we know today. So just curious what your team is doing how you guys are handling that stuff outside of just the workouts and training. Right. I, I really want to give credit to Ryan Warrenberg, who's my longtime assistant. Mm. He's been on the staff as assistant for almost 12 years. And he was a resident athlete prior to that. Um, and a lot of what he brought to the table for the team was, I mean, he came to me and said, can I start bringing a, um, sort of a stacked program in terms of adaptation um, for balance, for stability, and for power. Nice. And um, he has used everything from the things he learned from Louis Quintana and Walt Drenth in his time running at Arizona State okay. to a lot of the, the, the overwhelming majority of the work that we do in the weight room at Zap three to four days a week is stuff that comes directly from um, Jay Deshari. Uh, a bio biomechanist who was in Charlottesville, Virginia, but he's been in, in Bend, Oregon now for quite some time. The, the idea that to both strengthen and, and stabilize prime movers, the, um, the, the muscles and the strength to be able to spend less time on the ground and lots of work in the body center, particularly the gluteus medius, where so many athletes' injuries are born from instability in the body center. So mm. you're right, Brian, we had just touched on it, barely touched on it when you were here. And now it's a regular part of what we do. Um, I mean, I, I have to say we've got an athlete who's, who's only been on the team a couple of years. His name's Josh Zuski. He's from your neck of the woods. He's from Philly and um, he ran at the University of Florida. And yeah. He's a really talented. He's run two marathons. He ran two thirteen in his debut and two fourteen at the trials. And but for him, this is the area. Like, hey, what's what are next steps? And being stronger and and more stable because he's really struggled with stabilization. And uh, it's really not something we did a lot of when Zap started. And now it's a regular part of what we do. Yeah, that's fantastic. And then what about nutrition recovery? Yep. What what has changed since I've been there? So when I say I've been there, I'm just um, just stating two that was 2004, 2005. Yep. So that aspect too, in in your time, we really it was still kind of old school, you know, kind yeah. of once a once a runner esque. Like, hey, if you run a lot, 
and the furnace is hot, put whatever in you want, it doesn't matter what you eat, right? And now we've really learned a lot more of the science of it that what you put in does matter, that uh, making sure that you get sufficient protein and fat, and fat, the right kinds of fat, hopefully, but it, it, it does matter. Um, and that the old thinking with diet that it should just be, you know, 90 to 95% of your caloric intake on a daily basis should just be complex carbohydrates. You know, it's crazy what we used to think. So we stress that greatly with the athletes now, like, Hey, make sure you're consuming, uh, you know, 10 to 15 grams of protein within the first 15 to 20 minutes after exercise, make sure that you have calories that you bring with you to practice each day for you finish the run, you finish your cool down jog, don't wait till you get back down to zap and shower and s- stretch before you get to the table and eat. Eat something now immediately following. Make sure that you're getting um, 85 to 100 ounces of fluid. And it can't just be water. It needs to make sure that it it has electrolytes with it because um, you lose so much in terms of electrolytes in training, particularly here on the East Coast, as, as humid as it is. All the things that we did not talk about, frankly enough, Brian, when you were on the team um, and, and I don't think anyone was doing it at that time, you know, yeah. for the most part. I mean, I would say objectively, maybe Alberto was. I mean, he's the guy who was always seemed to be sort of on the cutting edge of things. But even even as it relates to sort of like bone production and vitamin D, you know, like right. vitamin D is something that every athlete on the team takes vitamin D now. Um, and the amounts that, that, you know, the typical American doctor will recommend are not anywhere near enough or even iron like now. Let's get we'll get your iron tested regularly and see the sheer number of athletes who are deficient in iron is really crazy, particularly women. So all those things that we sort of just let fly before um, were we talked more openly uh, about now. And as far as recovery, yeah, you know, it's making sure that you're spending 90 minutes prone each day. Yeah, it's it's an mm. important thing, even if you're not necessarily sleeping. Um, Rest is not the absence of training. It's part of training and, um, and getting a massage every week. Um, many of the things that um, folks around the country don't have time to do with their busy lives, but our crew does. And that's all kind of coming back to talking about believing in the system, buying in, because I think one of the, the traps that I fell into was sort of that anxiety around, I've got this short window. I've got to make this happen. You know, I've made this huge commitment and I would try to add in, right? I would try and add on top of what you, you know, would tell me to do sometimes, meaning just kind of like, oh, okay, I'll, a couple more miles. We ended up going on the long run here and there. Sure. sure. And um, is that always a battle? Just kind of, I think there's the the challenge, right, of individualizing it. But then I'm sure you've got some of these guys that come down there because they want to be part of the group, right? And um so I remember that being, um, you know, a small issue, obviously, when I was down there. That's sort of a tough balance. I think you have to probably strike, right? It's a tough balance, and, and, and this might seem very unusual for your listeners, but yeah, I, I do say to the athletes on the team, I, I never want you to be too coachable. And what I, what I mean <laughs> is not that I don't want them to be coachable, but I do think that it is important that each athlete listens to their body greatly. If we have a 20-mile run plan and you feel absolutely awful, is it okay to stop at 15 or 16 because it's just not your day? Yes. Um, if you have 
a 15 mile run plan on a medium long day and you feel phenomenal and it's that day where you just feel like you know I'd really like to get in a few extra miles is that okay in the absence of permission from your coaches yes it is so even yeah. within a system or within prescribed workouts like I do think it's important that athletes listen to their bodies and respond because no coach no matter how much they know or how good a coach they are uh, can be in an athlete's body and I really like it when when an athlete will say Hey, you know, um, I know we had sort of a uh, a single eighty-minute day plan, but I think I'm going to make today a fifty-minute, thirty-minute split double day, just because I was really, really fatigued today from yesterday's workout. It's okay to make those decisions on your own. Yeah, it's funny. I mean, even on, on the recreational level, it's interesting because it's just a it's a human thing, right? You've got those runners are just as obsessed sometimes about weekly mileage, what that number is, right? And and man, if they miss something, the tendency of someone, you know, I think in many cases with coaches, it's like, oh, well, I, I added on to make up for that missed day or mm. because I was yeah. tired, you know, it's like I had to add, you know, today I went 16 instead of eight. Um, so it's interesting to see. And ironically, I always use um, Ellie Rono as an example yeah. When it comes to listening to your body, talk about a guy who just hammered, right? I mean, yep. the some of the stories just being around him, I cherish that experience and what I learned. Um, but he, just fascinating to see the numbers he would put up each day. And then he'd roll out of bed one morning and I would laugh because he would just be like, ah, I'm tired. I'm going back to bed. And I'm like, you got, you got to hit 26 miles today. What do you mean? Like, when are you going to get it in? He's like, no, I'm just... I'm not going to run, you know? And I'm like, well, you're not going to come close to what your coach said you had to do this week. And he's like, I'm tired. I'm going back to bed. You know? And that was it. I, I really encourage people for all of the running geeks out there like me to take an hour and just scroll through Bill Rogers training from those years, 74, 75, 76, 77, which uh, Bob Hodge has mm -hmm. graciously Type, typed out and you, if you just google Bill Rogers training logs you, you'll find them and you know Billy had largely a career devoid of injury which is very rare but he I, I, I've gotten to know Bill well he's been to Zap every year since we opened and you know it would be days like 15 in the morning 8 at night 17 in the morning uh, 8 at night 18 in the morning 4 at night and then it would say off and I've asked Bill about those off days, you know, why, what, what wasn't he, didn't he just say in his own unique way, you know, I just didn't feel it that day. Um, I wonder why. It's a rare thing to be able to listen to your body and to not just go off of what's on paper. And that's, if there is a danger of a lot of these, and you know, you and I both do them, Brian, internet-based training programs. If there is one danger, it's that, you know, you see it on paper, so you have to do it. Right. Um, and it's really not true that, you know, if you listen to your body and, and know what it's telling you, the signs that it tells you, it's okay to be a bit malleable. Right. And, and also, like, this is a 24-week plan. You're focused on the peak mileage week versus, you know, what's the totality? What's the total body of work? And, and over 24 weeks is that total body of work. Does it represent a balance that allows you to actually be consistent, you know, and in one sense, like Ellie and Bill Rogers, they're extreme examples. So they're pushing themselves to such a limit where they almost just 
they have no choice but to take a day off almost right they they can't scrape themselves out of bed um you so so it's really kind of teaching people to find that balance you feel great now right i think i got into that trouble sometimes as as an athlete um you feel great in that moment right so you you're naturally you're going to push for more and you're not thinking of like but what's the balance over the course of the year that keeps me healthy and that's hard to do and obviously that's where a coach has to step in but and i would take it a step further brian in in mm. one respect we talk about this a lot at zap which is for as much as technology has helped coaches and athletes learn more read more the, the the one area that I don't believe that it always serves us well is we've morphed into this running society where everyone knows exactly how far and how fast they run every single day. <laughs> and um, look, I use a Garmin um, and many of our Zap visitors, you know, love um, Strava and they can compare to their friends. All, all those things are great. But the, the, I encourage the people I coach not just the Zap athletes, but I coach a handful of others around the country to actually just go out the door a couple days a week with no take your watch off and leave mm. your device uh, on the counter and just go and say, you know what, I'm going to go do that loop I love. I don't know how long it's going to take me. I don't. I will not know how fast I'm running. I'm just going to listen to the best listening device of all, which is your body. Yeah. Now it's such a good tip. I think that's with GPS now that people have lost that they can't. They don't understand pace. They don't understand effort unless they're looking at the the, the digits on their device, you know? Um, sure. And that's a shame. Um, so we were lucky, I guess, in that sense, right? Pre, pre-technology, you're sort of, you, you weren't sure what your competitors were doing, right? Which I guess could help, it could hurt. Um, well, in those years at Zap, I remember we had dial-up and it would take you... <laughs> 30 minutes just to get online so do you guys have paved (laughs) roads now at zap i would assume everything is paved tell me right no so the road down to zap uh that that uh that road down from the blowing rock side is is still a beautiful dirt country road and um uh we uh we like it uh down down there in the valley although what's interesting is you you wouldn't recognize it quite as much as uh, Blowing Rock has expanded out a little bit. Uh, that on that dirt road, there's some really nice vacation homes now. Oh, interesting. Okay, so the one side dirt, the other side going up to the old house. You guys don't still rent where Brendan and I live, do, do you? Or no? Is that house gone by now? No, <laughs> that house is, is not gone. We do not rent it anymore. But it um, that house is now owned by uh, a gentleman by the name of Nathan Bullock, a young man in his 20s who um, works for the oh. town of Boone. And it they've completely fixed it up, and they've got a gorgeous garden right there oh, cool. uh, in the front. But, yeah, I mean, I drive by that, and I think about you seeing the bobcat behind the <laughs> behind the house. <laughs> yeah, a lot of fun fun memories from that, especially when Ellie was out chopping wood across the street one day. <laughs> preparing for winter um all right pete oh, i appreciate everything you guys are doing and um what can our listeners do to support zap we'll we'll point them to your website is there anything else um that they should uh, know about no i i i 
really thank you for having me here and what you, what you guys have done uh, is great for the sport. And um, uh, thank you for giving me uh, time to, to speak with you today. But yeah, I'd, I'd, if folks want to go to zapendurance.com and check out what we do. And if you're an adult, maybe excited about a summer running vacation, uh, the Blue Ridge Mountains are a beautiful place. Agreed. Thanks, Pete. Thanks, Brian. We'll talk to you soon. I've been over here.